is Christmas confusing to anyone? I know for a lot of people, the Christmas story, the story of Jesus, the motions of it all, like very familiar, almost to the point that sometimes it gets blurry again. It's like when you listen to a song so much, you fall in love with the song, you overplay the song to the point that eventually you stop listening to the song. You're like, I get that song. I know that song. Maybe Christmas feels like that or your faith feels like that. It's so close that it's gotten blurry, like staring at a word for too long where you go, Christmas. Is that how that's spelled? Is there a T? Is that a word? Is that real? Is this real? Am I real? We, everybody's done that, right? Sometimes your faith can feel like that because it's so familiar. I know that this is also a confusing time of year. Like we talk about, we're going into December, peace and joy, Christmas season, here we go. And then we overfill our calendars, we overspend our money, overwhelm ourselves with the people that we surround ourselves with and commit to, and we sit around tables because we have to and hear political opinions we don't want to. And by the time Christmas arrives, we're just over it. Doug told me that 45% of people in a poll said they would skip Christmas altogether if they could. How sad is that? But if I took a poll in this room, that might be true for you right now. I think there's a, the most confusing thing about Christmas for a lot of people is the basic question of what, what are we doing here? What's the big deal here? Why are we making such a big deal to celebrate the birthday of a guy who was born 2,000 years ago, who was clearly a big time influencer in his time, and now there's some weird Christian people obsessed with him still to this day? But what's the big deal with Christmas? Why is our calendar split based off the birth of this baby? Why do I walk into a coffee shop at Christmas time and hear worship songs? They may not know they're playing worship songs, but the songs we sing at Christmas time are about this baby. People will walk into church during December and go, that was cool. You guys played Christmas songs at church. I'm like, well, those are worship songs. We're singing about Jesus. But you may be asking the question, why? I remember being a freshman in college and a friend of mine invited me to go to a Christmas church service. I hadn't been to church in a while. I'd grown up going to church, but never made my faith personal. And so I figured this should be a good thing to do. Check the box. I assumed that there was a God. I didn't think he wanted anything to do with me because of the life that I'd lived up to that point. But I figured I'd go to church. And I walked into that service and I felt something. But I also felt like I was joining mid-conversation. Like everybody else around me probably understands this whole Christmas thing. And for some reason, I, I don't. What's the big deal? Who is this baby, why are we making such a big deal about him? Who is this baby? When my son was born, his two older cousins, Ezra and Milo, were so excited to have a baby cousin, baby Zeke. And for them, especially the younger of the two, Milo, his reference from that point was just that any baby was Zeke. So any baby he saw, baby Zeke, any baby, that baby Zeke, until his sister was born. And they took Milo to the hospital to meet her, and he goes into the room, and he says, oh, it's baby Zeke. And everyone in the room's like, well, no, Milo, this is your new baby sister. And Milo said a line that has lived in infamy in our family. He looks at his brand new baby sister and goes, I don't know that baby. I don't know that baby. And I have a feeling that every year, a lot of people in here walk in and out of the Christmas season still saying, I don't know that baby. I do the same traditions, I do the same things. I know a little more about him each year, but I don't know him. And my hope this Christmas is that you can't walk out of this service or this season being able to say what Milo once said, I don't know that baby, but that you would walk out of here saying, I know that baby. That's the title of this message with the don't crossed out. I know that baby. And we see so much of who God is just through the Christmas story. 
it may seem like it's just the beginning, it's just the birth of Jesus, kind of the introduction, but we actually find out just who our God is right here in the very beginning of the story of Jesus. I love the Christmas story. I always resonate with the grittiness of the story. The people that God chooses to work in and through. The people group that Jesus comes from. You may have wondered like Bethlehem, he's born in Israel, we hear a lot about Israel. What's the whole story here? What's leading up to the birth of this guy Jesus that everyone's making such a big deal about? And I love this story and so in short, we'll just cover the Old Testament in two minutes. God creates everything, creates everything, including mankind for relationship with him in this perfect, beautiful creation. But love is not love at all if it's forced. And so mankind has the opportunity to make decisions. And Adam and Eve choose, the original humans choose to sin against God, to go against his plan and say, no, we wanna be like God. We wanna do things our way. We wanna decide what's right and wrong. And sin creates a chasm in this relationship between a perfect holy God and imperfect people in a fallen, broken world. There's a sin problem. Namely that death is now in the picture. But God is a God of relationship and God will have his people. And so God puts this plan into motion. You read about it through the Old Testament to redeem and restore his people to himself, to deal with the sin problem, to bring his people back to his original intention of perfect relationship and eternity together. And he goes to this man, Abraham, and he goes, hey, I know you, you and your wife are old, you've never been able to have a baby, but you're gonna have a family, and through your family, I'm going to bless everyone, all nations. And then it happens, and that family grows into a nation called Israel. And they have this crazy story where God has called them to be set apart and live differently than the rest of the world. So people would look at them and go, there's something different here. It's the God that they worship. But they have this messy history. A lot of times you're reading through and you're like, really God, these people? They're, they're enslaved in Egypt. Moses leads them to freedom. Then they just complain in a desert for so long. And they finally make it to their promised land and they establish a kingdom and there's kings. You'll hear about like King David and there's ups and downs, a lot of downs a lot of times where these people are just going directly against what God's told them to do and then bearing the consequences of that, namely that they end up at times in exile, pulled out of their homes, captivity in other empires, a messy story of some messy people that God says he's going to bless the world through. And all through their history, there are prophets, mouthpieces for God, these people who speak and remind them, hey, remember what God said, remember what God's up to, remember what we're called to, who we're supposed to be, and there's a thread through this whole story that one day a king, unlike any other, will come and establish their kingdom forever. A promise of a Messiah. Now they go through this history and they're hearing this and then they finally get out of exile and go back to their home and they reestablish themselves. And then there's 400 years where not a prophet speaks. Silence. Where the people have to be wondering, is God done with us? Is the promise no longer here for us? Have we gone too far? Has he forsaken us? And that silence is broken as an angel goes to this young, humble teenager, a nobody named Mary, and says, God sees your heart and you're going to be the mother of the Messiah. It's time. And Mary has this faithful fiance, Joseph, who with a little help from an angel realizes she's not crazy, she's not lying, she didn't cheat on you. This is the miracle of the Messiah and you gotta step up to the plate, Joseph, because you're the fill-in dad here. And so they go through her pregnancy. They end up needing to go to Bethlehem right at the time when she's about to have a baby. As a guy whose wife is nine months pregnant right now, I can tell you the last thing I wanna do right now is, hey babe, so good news, we get to get on a donkey and ride a couple miles through the desert. It's gonna be awesome. I'd rather watch the 
uh, the new Netflix Lindsay Lohan Christmas movie for the entire month of December, nonstop, no sleeping, then go on that journey with my nine-month pregnant wife. I can tell you that. But they go and they get to Bethlehem. And Mary's going into labor, of course, but there's no room for them at the one place they can stay, the inn, and so they have to go to a stable outback. And on a gross, disgusting dirt floor, Mary gives birth with a bunch of farm animals around like, whoa, there I was sleeping, and now I'm witnessing the birth of a human being for the first time. This is shocking. There he lies in a manger, the Messiah, the promise, the blessing, humbly, the word who became flesh, the one who is, was, is, and is to come is lying there humbly in a manger with two nobodies for parents. And you know who the first people that get to come meet him are? Shepherds. Like the lowest class, smelly, out in a field, nobody would want them near anything important religiously. And all of a sudden, the heavenly host appears, the glory of God breaks through the sky and scares the crap out of these guys. But the angel tells them, do not be afraid, for I bring good tidings of great joy for all people. Today, your Messiah, he's here, your Savior, he's come. He's in Bethlehem, go and meet him. And they're the first guests that get to meet Jesus. I love the grittiness of this story because I'm one of those people, if I look at my life, if there's a line to get to God based on our resume and our good behavior, I'm towards the back of that line. My friends can attest to that. But the story of Christmas tells us right from the beginning that Jesus has come for all people. Maybe this Christmas, that's all you needed to hear or be reminded of, that Jesus came for you. Yes, you. You are not the exception to the grace of God. You didn't shock God with the life that you've lived. He came for you. Jesus was the guy that everyone said, you're with those people, really? In my life, there's been plenty of times where I think people would ask Jesus, you're with Ethan right now? Really? You're willing to be seen with that guy? Yeah, because I came for everybody. That's the story of Christmas. There's another story within the Christmas narrative that I've never really resonated with or really understood. As a staff, I challenged our, our whole crew a couple weeks ago, hey, let's all read the Christmas story in scripture and then let's see what like sticks out to us. It's such a familiar story, but for a lot of us, it was like going back to listen to that old song that you once loved, like, oh yeah, this is so good. There's so much here. There's things that stuck out to me. And I kept reading it the next few days and there was one story that I kept going, I, I don't get it. And when you find a story in scripture that is like that, you should probably dig into it because there's probably something there. It's the story of the wise men, the magi as they're called. They're this elite, fancy, rich-seeming group of mysterious guys who come in, and I've always read that, not really related, because I'm not rich, elite, fancy, or mysterious. I'm a very straightforward, average human being, just very normal and plain. And so I've always read that, like, was this a political move? Were these guys just coming in to kiss the baby and give some gifts to get some good PR? Like, what? And they saw a star, and that's, somehow they just decided they were gonna go to Mary and Joseph's house? Like, what is this story? I started to dig into it and I found a journey that I think we can all relate to. And so I wanna give you a little background before we go through the journey of the Magi or the wise men. But if you're one of those people that always tuned out in history class, hold on to just this one statement about them. A pastor named Alistair Begg says, the wise men were a group of sincere individuals trying to figure things out. You may not relate to their status, their wealth, their prominence, the time they lived in, the empire they came from, but I think we can all relate to being sincere individuals trying to figure things out. I think there's a whole lot of those in this room. I see a lot of those in our culture, in our city, in this church, people wander in here. Some of them with a ton of church baggage. Some of them angry at a God they claim doesn't exist. 
I can see the look in some people's eyes. They're sitting there, worship's going on, and they're looking around like, why am I here right now? I don't even like Christians. Don't raise your hand if that's you right now. There's some, there's some good ones here. But there's something pulling people even to a place, the last place maybe you thought you'd be this Christmas, going, what's this all about? What's going on here? Sincere individuals trying to figure things out, looking a little deeper than the surface of just this life that we sometimes mindlessly go through. For about a little over 200 years, we were known as a Christian nation. I know there's a lot of blemishes to that statement. But the idea being that this culture, our roots were in the Christian faith, the teachings, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. In the past couple of decades, that has changed. You'll hear people now call us a post-Christian or post-church nation that's moved into an age of secularism. Basically saying we've graduated from faith. We're smarter than that now. The ultimate authority is us. In short, we've decided that we're God. There's a pastor named Tim Keller who says the, the narrative of salvation now is that what we need to be saved from is not our sin, it's not our own stuff. What we need to be saved from is the idea that we need to be saved at all. That truth is not something out there that God holds that we align our lives to. Instead, truth is something in here that everyone else must align themselves to. But we're watching how that's playing out with eight billion different truths and people treating each other worse and worse and feeling like the ultimate authority, but then they're also the ultimate authority. An idolization of politics, the new religion, narcissism abounding, chaos ensuing. Merry Christmas. This is what's happening. Here's what's interested me in the last year. I've listened to not just pastors, not just Christian people, social commentators, all kinds of different podcasts, and I've started to hear people referring to us as a post-secular culture with a return to the spiritual, with so many people looking around going, well, this can't be it, showing that secularism maybe has a shelf life of 20 years, all the, the things that are being sold to us for salvation by our culture, money, sex, fame, politics, influence, likes, follows, it's not working. People are coming back to some sort of faith, trying to find faith, a religious root, something there to realize there's something bigger going on here, what is it? And there's a lot of wonky roads that people are going down. There's a lot of DIY faith. Take a little bit here, a little bit there, which is still you being God and deciding what truth is. But what I am seeing is a whole lot of sincere individuals trying to figure things out and realizing that this secularism is not working, that what our culture is selling us is not working. Something deep down inside is going, there's something bigger going on, which I think is why we're drawn to Christmas. Because even if you're like me, that freshman in college, not really sure what this is all about, there's something saying there's something beyond this. There's something bigger at work here. And I believe the Christmas story, the journey of the wise men, as we journey with them, illuminates to us exactly what we're looking for. Now, if, if it just said wise men, we could think like these were the old men that played chess on the east side of town and they just decided to drive over to Mary and Joseph's house. But we get the word magi which is a prominent group of people through history. We actually know a good amount about this group from scripture, but from sources outside of the Bible as well. A group of wealthy, influential, prominent priestly leaders with roots in ancient history, primarily seen in the Babylonian and Medo-Persian empires. Some of you, those history people that zoned out, your eyes are starting to roll back. A group of significant individuals trying to figure things out. These guys had their hands in astronomy, astrology, science, 
math, agriculture, architecture, and especially in government. They've been referred to as kingmakers. They would appoint kings and hold them in check in the empires that they were in. One of the best definitions I've heard of them is scientific theologians. And we can see in the story they were looking and studying the stars and we might think, oh, astrology or astronomy in the way that we think of it, but they would not have divorced faith and science the way that we do in our culture. They would have thought that was very naive. They knew there was a God. They were just trying to study creation in the cosmos to figure out who is this and what is this all about, trying to figure things out. The Magi, a very interesting group, trying to figure things out and they enter into the story of scripture, but it can still sound completely bizarre. Let's read Matthew chapter two, verses one and two. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now here's how I've always read that passage. There's some group of guys that live east of all of this and they're obsessed with the stars. And so every night they sit out in their lawn chairs on a rooftop and they just watch the sky. And this one night, a new star starts flickering. And they're sitting there looking at it, taking notes. And one guy finally breaks the silence and goes, well, Jeff, what do you think? And Jeff says, well, if I had to guess, you know the Israelites, the Jewish people, they've always talked about how God was gonna bless the world through their, their nation and this king's gonna come, this Messiah. Well, I think that that star is telling us that he's just been born. So saddle up, boys, we ride at dawn. <laughs> that sounds so bizarre. Why would a group of people just see a star and go, I think I know what we need to do. Go meet this new king who's from a different people group. We'll just travel far away. It sounds even crazier when you realize they most likely were coming from Babylon, which is 800 miles away. They're gonna journey at their own expense they're gonna risk their lives. There was no flights into Jerusalem. This is gonna take months of their life, potentially like a year round trip because they saw a star and they think that maybe that means there's a king in a different nation than theirs. Why would they go to meet this baby on this incredibly long journey? Well, you may remember, I'm so glad you asked. You may remember that I said that there was a time when the Israelites were taken captive. They went into exile and they were taken into the Babylonian empire. They were enslaved to the Babylonians and their youngest, best and brightest, a select group were enslaved straight to the king. They were in the king's court. They were gonna work for the king. And one of those figures rose to become a very prominent influence in the history of the Magi. There was this guy who would interpret dreams for Nebuchadnezzar. He watched his three best friends be thrown into a fire and walk out unscathed. He himself was put into a den of lions because of his faith that he would not relent on. And he walked out the next morning and the lions hadn't touched him. And the people were fascinated by this guy, Daniel, the lion's den guy. The Magi, this group trying to figure things out, would have been fascinated by him. In fact, he rose to become the chief of the Magi. You can read about it in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Daniel became the chief of the Magi in Babylon and into the Medo-Persian Empire. And Daniel talked about his God, but he wasn't just a guy who lived a crazy life, he was also a prophet. And he spoke some things that were to come, like this. As the visions during the night continued, I saw coming with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man. 
When he reached the Ancient of Days, he was presented before him. He received dominion, splendor, and kingship. All nations, people, and tongues will serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away. His kingship, one that shall not be destroyed. Now, if you've got a room of kingmakers, they're gonna be fascinated with talking about a king like this, who has an everlasting dominion, a king unlike we've ever heard about before. And it's clear that some of the Magi through history followed the Jewish scriptures, studied what God spoke through his people, studied what the prophets had said. They would have known Numbers 24, 17 that says a star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. But they wouldn't have just had a vague idea that one day a star is gonna show up in the sky and that means we should travel really far away to go find a baby. Because Daniel, you can read in chapter nine, lays out for them, he says, you wanna see the power of my God? I'm gonna tell you what's gonna happen in the future. And he lays out what's to come. And you can interpret it, and they would have had a Q&A with him like, excuse me, Daniel, what does this mean? What does this mean? They would have known the time period when this king was going to come based off the prophecies of Daniel. And so you've got a group of people trying to figure things out. Now put them in their time and place whose king they had recently deposed in the Medo-Persian Empire. They'd been at war with Rome, who had Caesar, a king claiming to be God, and they'd fought on this little middle ground called Israel with this puppet king Herod, and they would have looked around and been, it's none of these. We're looking for a king. We're in the exact time when this is supposed to be happening, according to Daniel, who's never said anything that didn't happen. And then one night, the glory of God shines in the sky. Now, people debate for some reason, like, what was the star? Which star was it? How do we know? I would say, on one level, if God created all of the stars, he can probably illuminate something in the sky to the people studying them to illuminate to them what's happening. I also think it's amazing that God meets them right where they're at right where they're looking, this group of sincere individuals just trying to seek out, what is this all about? Who is this king that could come? And God meets them, but here's, if you want a theory about the star, here's what I would tell you. The night that Jesus was born, the hills, the fields of Bethlehem, they witnessed the sky open and the glory of God shine on earth, unlike it ever had. There's this Hebrew word, koshav, that you'll hear about in Numbers way back, talking about the star, it comes back in the book of Matthew and it means the blazing forth of the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God shining in the sky, a sight unlike the sky had ever seen. And so God illuminates to this group, it's happening. And they decide to begin their journey. I imagine the words of Daniel's contemporary, the prophet Jeremiah, may be ringing in their ears as they make this long journey, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And so they go, they write it down. And they make it there, and now with a lot more context about this group, the expectation they had, the interpretations of the scriptures, what they knew was coming, now we can read their story and go, okay, I think I understand exactly what they're looking for and why they're here. So let's start again. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and they asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now this was not three guys, as your nativity scene makes it seem like. This was an entourage, a powerful group from the east coming in. And everybody's going, what are they doing here? They also... We're coming in probably six months to two years after Jesus was born. Your nativity scene makes it seem like the shepherds stopped by at 7.30 and then the wise men swung by at eight. 
But remember, they're 800 miles away. They see the sign, they interpret the scriptures, they decide to go, this is gonna take months. So Jesus is a toddler at this point. And they get to Jerusalem, and I picture, like if I'm on this journey, I'm just waiting to get there because everybody's gotta be buzzing about this. There are messiahs here. When I was a kid, my family would go on road trips to California, and one of the things we thought was the funniest thing in the world is my dad would be driving, we'd go into a town we'd never been before, and there'd be like a person standing outside of a Starbucks, right outside of it, my dad would roll the window down and go, excuse me, we're not from around here, is there a Starbucks anywhere nearby? And some people would look at him like, is this guy an idiot? But there would be like a decent amount of people who would scratch their heads and be like, oh my gosh, I know there is a Starbucks somewhere around here, and we'd just be laughing in the back of the car. I just, I just was by, I, I cannot remember what street it's on. I'm so sorry. Oh, that's okay, we'll just keep driving. We'll find it, don't worry about it. And then we'd drive away laughing, picturing them turning around, realizing it was there the entire time. <laughs> that's what it feels like is happening to the Magi. They show up and they're like, hey, your Messiah's here, right? Surely you all know where that is. And everyone's like, what? Yeah, I think some shepherds were spreading a rumor, but nobody listens to them. Everyone's like, duh, I don't know. And so then they, they, uh, Herod hears this. Herod, it says, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all of the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. So this is a weird response. If the Messiah is here, the king of kings, and everyone's kind of freaked out, Herod's probably freaked out because he's wondering, are they going to war again? Are we gonna get wrapped up in this? Are they gonna get rid of me? He's probably a little insulted because they go, hey, we're looking for your king. And he says, speaking, and they go, no, not you. We're talking about like the king, that your people, these people have been awaiting for a long time. And when Herod gets insecure, people die. And so everybody else is like, what is going on right now? So he goes to his wise men. Herod was not an Israelite, he was an Edomite. So he, he didn't know much about, apparently, the Messiah. You'd think he would have been smart enough to study the people that he was ruling. But he was a puppet king. His job was to collect taxes and keep the peace. So all of a sudden he's freaked out. So he goes to his wise men and he asks them, hey, if your Messiah is coming, where's he gonna be born? And they say, in Bethlehem, in Judea. For this is what the prophet has written. This was Micah, the prophet, 700 years before this. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. So Herod goes to them and they're like, oh, easy question. Everybody knows that, Bethlehem. That was spoken 700 years ago. Herod comes back and gets a secret meeting with the Magi and goes, hey, here's the deal, Bethlehem, you guys go there and then if you find him, you let me know because I'd love to go worship him too. Winking all the way because he's already plotting to get rid of this child because he's a threat to his power. And so all of the city of Jerusalem is put on notice and then just this entourage of outsiders goes to meet Jesus. Let's just stop here and think about how crazy this is. A group comes from the outside and goes, hey, we've been interpreting your scriptures. We saw a sign, we believe your Messiah is here. And the people there know, they go, oh, we know all about this. Yeah, it would happen in Bethlehem if it were to happen. The distance from Jerusalem to Bethlehem is six miles. So the Magi have gone, 800 miles, they've got six more to go. You'd think that everyone else would be like, well, that's only six miles for us, let's go see. Let's go see about a king with these guys. And then everyone just goes back to business as usual while the Magi go to meet Jesus. 
what it tells me is you can know a lot about Jesus and not actually know him. You could spend your whole life spectating, knowing things about him and not actually just go and meet him. I'm looking at these people wanting to shake them. You've got six more miles, just six more miles, go. Go and meet your Messiah, he's here. And everybody's just back to business as usual. And so the Magi look around and go, okay, well, we're gonna go. It says, after they heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. God has revealed to them, go right here. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. They go, and just as we heard in the beginning of their story, we see at the end that their whole purpose was to worship him. I love this. It reminds us again that Jesus has come for all people. These are outsiders. They're from a different nation, a different empire. There were boundaries and lines drawn between them and the Israelites who thought their king would just come for them. And yet it's a group of Gentile outsiders who come and worship Jesus. And it shows us also that yes, Jesus has come to lift up the lowly, but at the same time, the most elite of the world will bow their knees to him. Even when he's a toddler. Picture this. This is an elite, rich group of people from the outside, pomp and circumstance. They show up to this humble home with two nobodies for parents and they get in there, experience God, see this toddler king and they get on their knees, they bow and worship a guy who's going through potty training <laughs> because they realize this is not just any king. This is the king that we've been waiting for. This is the king that the world has been waiting for, that these scriptures have told us about the king of kings. And we know they had some faith and expectation by the gifts that they bring to Jesus. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They carry significance in the meaning behind them. They show that these guys knew what they were talking about and they expected something about this person. Gold is what you give to a king, the most precious, valuable gift you can give. And so here we have the first coronation of the king of kings from a group of outside Gentiles saying this is a king. But they're also saying this isn't just some earthly king. Frankincense, think incense, this was what the high priest would offer, would burn as an offering to God. They're saying this, there is divinity here. This is a priestly king, the great high priest, the advocate to humans. And then they give him myrrh. So this priestly group, sincere individuals trying to figure things out, they come in and they give him gold and frankincense. You're the priestly king we've been looking for, but then they give him myrrh, which is a bizarre gift to give to a toddler. When my brother was born, we had this uncle somewhere out in the world and the gift that he gave to my newborn brother was two full-size sets of boxing gloves. Yeah. This is such a bizarre gift to give to a new baby. Now, when we grew up, we had a use for those. We loved them. When we were like seven and nine, we'd get home from school and just beat each other up on the trampoline. It was awesome. But a strange gift to give to a newborn. Myrrh was an even stranger, maybe offensive gift to give because myrrh was used for embalming or burial. I picture Mary and Joseph together washing the dishes once they've left and they're looking at each other like, wow, that was crazy. Our own neighbors don't believe us about this kid. And they journeyed 800 miles. Those, those priestly leaders, the Magi were in our house and they worshiped our son. Really nice guys, not what I expected. And they brought us gifts. Really nice of them to bring some gold, we could use that. 
A little strange that they brought Murray. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. What do they mean by that? I'm sure they meant well. A gift given in faith. Because if they had studied the scriptures, they would have heard about this king who was also a suffering servant. I think one of the most beautiful things about the gifts of this story is how Jesus metaphorically opens them through his life. He goes, save the gold, save the frankincense, bring me the myrrh. I don't have time for a palace. They don't want me in the temple. I've got something else that awaits me. Before he puts on a crown, he picks up a cross. Because he's not just some king, he is our savior who lays his life down, sheds his blood, offered as the perfect sacrifice for our sin. This isn't just some king who's gonna rule for a little while. This is a king who would lay his life down for his people. Bring me the myrrh. This is what Christmas means. Jesus is our savior and because, Jesus, because of Jesus, we are saved from our sin. He came to deal with that chasm that was between God and mankind, to bridge that gap to pay our wages due to us with his death so that we could have eternity with him before a crown, a cross, before a temple, a tomb. But we know that this story does not end there. Jesus walks out of that tomb. In Isaiah 60, there's prophecy that talks about the end of all of this when there is no more pain and sorrow and mourning. And there are two gifts mentioned that are brought. Do you know what those are? Gold and frankincense. No mention of myrrh. Why? Because we don't need any more because Jesus already took care of it with his death. So Jesus walks out of the tomb, commissions his church, ascends to heaven, and we have him as our mediator, our advocate, the great high priest, just as the frankincense told us. Hebrews chapter four says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. We don't hide. We don't hide in our shame. No, we approach our God with confidence because Jesus is our great high priest. Because of Jesus, we approach God. We approach the throne of grace with confidence. Our savior, our great high priest, and as the gold called the shot a long time ago, the king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords whose kingdom will never end. How about a little revelation on Christmas for you? I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Make no mistake, Jesus is not coming back for his kingdom and his people as a cute little toddler. He is coming back as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and his kingdom will know no end. Just as Daniel told the Magi, just as the angel said to Mary, this kingdom, his dominion will, it will last forever. 
and he has made it possible for you because he is your savior, your great high priest, your king. Jesus is our king and because of Jesus, this is not the end. Today is not the end. Because of Jesus, your depression is not the end. Because of Jesus, your pain is not the end. Because of Jesus, your loss is not the end. Because of Jesus, your diagnosis is not the end. Because of Jesus, your mistake is not the end. Because of Jesus, death itself is not the end. This Christmas, the beginning, the birth, the beginning of the story of Jesus, what it tells us is that we celebrate the end of the end. We don't say that anymore because Jesus came to establish a kingdom forever. We read about those Medo-Persian kings and Caesar and here, we read about them in history books, but like the wise men, we worship Jesus, a king unlike any other. And here's what I know, in this room, there are a bunch of sincere individuals who've been trying to figure things out. You've been on a journey, maybe it's felt like 800 miles of ups and downs, times maybe like Herod of hostility towards this whole idea, times of complete indifference, like the Israelites in Jerusalem. But this journey has led you here today to the same place that it brought the wise men. There's some people in this room and I just know it, you've got six more miles six more miles to go from knowing about this baby to knowing this baby, to go from knowing a little more about Christmas to knowing your savior, your maker, your king, Jesus. And I don't want you to walk out of here today without the opportunity to know him. I don't want you to walk out of here like my nephew Milo and say, I don't know that baby. I want you to know him. And so if you would bow your heads and close your eyes, I wanna just say this. If you are somebody in this room and this is your six more miles, time to go and meet him, to know him, to call on him for relationship and for eternity. If that's you, I wanna invite you to boldly just put your hand up in the air. This is not a magical hand raise. This is an outward expression of what's happening internally right now as you are making that decision to say, oh, this isn't just some guy I hear about at Christmas. This is my savior, my king. Scripture says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your tongue that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. And so for those of you that raised your hands, I'm gonna pray and I wanna give you some words that you can pray, put it into your own words as you converse, as you confess with your tongue that Jesus is Lord. Jesus, today I call you savior. Jesus, I thank you that you came here for me in my sin, in my brokenness, Jesus, that you paid with your blood, that you took care of that chasm, that you brought me into right relationship for eternity with my heavenly Father. And Jesus, today I place my faith in you as my Lord, my Savior, my King. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you guys would rise to your feet, the story of Christmas reveals to us just who our King is, just who Jesus is. And today, in this room just now, there are people who said, I'm going six more miles. People who put their faith in Jesus. And so we're gonna worship like the wise men, we're gonna bow, we're gonna worship our King, and we're gonna celebrate that Jesus has come and that today people have entered into relationship with Him forever. Merry Christmas.